Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's Sponsored Insight is Dan Houlihan. Dan is the CEO of STP Investment Services, a global investment operations firm that provides complete front, middle, and back office services for investment managers. Dan joined STP in August of 2022 after spending 11 years at Northern Trust as Executive Vice President and Head of Asset Servicing. Prior to Northern Trust, he was president of CitySoft, a management consulting firm to the investment industry. If you're currently outsourcing operations or exploring the subject, this is a masterclass. Dan shares some key insights on the trends and considerations of operational outsourcing, the common triggers that begin the conversation, what to look for in an outsourcer, and how outsourcing could potentially launch products faster and enter new markets. Please enjoy my conversation with Dan Houlihan. Dan, it's great to see you. Thanks, Scott. Love to talk about all things outsourcing. It's something in the industry I'm excited to hear about what you guys are up to. But first, I want to start with your background. I'm in my 33rd year in the industry. So I started out in trust operations in Boston, right out of school, working for a small trust company. Moved through operations and was a trader. This is back in the day before order management systems. So this was a buy-side trader who was basically placing orders for the portfolio managers. Loring, Walcott & Coolidge, which was a great firm, great experience. It was a small firm, so I got to see how everything worked, where most of my friends had gone to State Street, MFS, wherever, to learn fund accounting, which was great. But that was more of a functional role where the experience that I had gave me a broader understanding of how asset manager or trust company works, particularly on the investment side. I then went from operations to technology. So I moved over to Thompson Financial in Boston. It was a collection of startups, fintechs, before the term was popular. But I worked around their emerging order management system and was a product manager and helped implement that system, sell it. And then went on to run a consulting practice within Thompson and then left in 1991 with two other fellows and we started a company called CitySoft, which is still around, which is a consulting firm that provides advisory services. So did that. We sold that company twice. And then I left after the second sale to work at Northern Trust, where I came in originally as the global head of product and strategy for their middle office outsourcing. And then I left Northern after 16 years where I was the head of the asset servicing business for the Americas and have now been at STP Investment Services for the past 13 months. So I have to go back and ask the question, how did you end up selling the company twice? The first company we started was called the Rowan Group, and it was a small advisory consulting firm. And we just happened to meet these three guys that were the founders of a company called CitySoft, which had been in the UK for 20 years or so and had a good reputation. And the reason we sold to them was we didn't need their funding. It was more that been around for 20 years and so had built a knowledge base of repeatable tools that we could leverage for different services. All it really was was changing the name on the door. It was the same service makeup. We became CitySoft in the U.S. And then what started to happen, 
the big Indian IT services companies started to creep into our space, particularly on the implementation side. So we would be a systems integrator for, you know, big portfolio accounting engines. They had lower cost resources. So we were trying to move up the value chain, if you will, and, and stay more on the strategy and advisory side of things. And so the notion was, let's do a deal with one of these Indian IT service providers who would give us more horsepower on the back end for the execution, and we could do the bigger picture strategy. So that was the intent. But I ended up leaving after a year, just wanted to do something new and different. When you think about the word technology back then, what's the big difference between that period of time and today? God, so much. The internet, for one. We didn't even have email back when I started, when I was working in operations. We would put big tapes on our trust accounting system every night to run back up, and that would go probably get stored in a safety deposit box at a bank. There were no order management systems back then. There was no concept of fintech, but there were big enterprise technologies out there for trust accounting, to traditional investment accounting, fund accounting. And then the internet came along, and obviously everything's fundamentally changed over the last particularly 20 years with respect to deployment methodologies, the availability, the speed to market of what can be done, the computing power, storage, all that. So, I mean, it's a different world that my kids will never understand. Talking about Northern Trust a little bit, what was a typical arrangement that you would have with clients? And I ran all of asset servicing, so that included all client verticals, so alternatives, traditional institutional managers, fund managers, private equity, asset owners, so we had sovereign wealth funds, foundations, endowments. It was the whole stack of services, so everything from custody to transfer agency, fund accounting, middle office. So the engagement model with clients looked different, as did the tech stack dependent upon the services that they were taking from us. So I was involved in a lot of very different client type of engagements and multi-jurisdictional. So I did run the U.S., but any European firms that had U.S. registered funds technically contracted with me. So whilst I ran the U.S., I spent a fair amount of time in London and Dublin working with some of our European clients that were launching U.S. product. And does everybody speak the same language in investment operations in a cross-border scenario? I think the core language is the same. Where I've gone around the world and I've spent a lot of time in Australia, Europe, Asia. When you start talking about middle office outsourcing, you got to get very specific depending on the firm that you're talking with. Like an asset owner might not think of middle office the same way as an asset manager might. So the words matter. So you, you definitely got to make sure you're saying the same words and meaning the same thing. When you have that conversation today, what does middle office mean to you? So it's the investment book of record, essentially everything post-execution all the way through to end client reporting, performance analytics, whether it's straight performance or attribution and contribution, and everything in between. So daily reconciliations, positions in cash with custodians. And I would say the most fundamental thing that we do in that role is provide startup date positions in cash for our clients and their order management systems. And that's if you think about it, it's data, but that's the raw materials with which they make their product every day. So it's got to be guaranteed delivery and it's got to be right. Now, front office is part of the continuum as well. So outsourced trading is a trend that we're definitely seeing, particularly on the equity side, that I think will continue. And it won't be right for every firm, but I do think we're seeing the digitalization and commoditization of some equity trading. Depending on the operating model, I think outsourced trading will be something that will continue to be a trend. Maybe back up a little bit and just dive into the evolution of outsourcing today and the strategic value it provides. 
That's where I spend a lot of my time is making sure that my organization, as well as our clients and our prospects, understand both the day-to-day blocking and tackling of what middle office outsourcing is, but also making sure that we're clear about what the strategic value is, and they're different. The tactical value is every day, as I said, we're providing starter day positions in cash. We're processing trades, matching, confirming, doing reporting, all of that. That's the blocking and tackling. But there's also a strategic side to it where the way that we think about it is if you outsource on our platform, we want to be thought as a platform company whereby we are the operating platform on and through which our clients are going to execute their business strategy. And everybody's strategy is different. But whether it's launching more product faster, getting into new asset classes, theoretically, you should be able to do that much more efficiently on an outsourced infrastructure. We can do any asset class. We can handle multiple end of days. So if you've got a desk in Europe or a desk in Asia, we can support that. So it's making sure that we understand what the strategic intent of our clients are and that we not only deliver on the day-to-day, but that we measure and monitor both the strategic value as well as the obvious operating costs and operating performance KPIs that we're responsible for reporting on. How do you think about the strategic side of that equation? There was a study that was done by Chatham Partners. They did an assessment of of firms that had outsourced the middle office. And one of the questions that they asked was, what's the value for dollar in having outsourced? And the average response they got back was 47 cents on the dollar, which is not a great number. When we were going through the results of the study, I said, well, it's interesting because I think it depends on who you ask. If you ask the head of operations for one of our clients, they may love us on a Monday and Tuesday we had a trade error. They're not going to be all that happy. Where if you ask the CEO or the CFO, you'd get a very different answer. And it goes back to the strategic side, which is, well, we've been able to move to a variable cost model. We've been able to launch more product faster. There's always going to be operational hiccups because it's a complex environment, but none of it's prevented us from running our business. That was what got me thinking about, okay, are we really thinking about the strategic side of this the right way? And now I think there's a whole new paradigm which is the strategic value. The way I think about it is most of our clients outsource to us to get a variable cost model in everything that we do, whether it's fund accounting, middle office, with the wealth side of our business. The assumption is that we can do it at scale and do it cheaper than any one firm can. And that's great, but what we want to do is impact the other side of their business. So we give them the variable cost model. The key for us is that we have their data How can we leverage that data to put more value back to our clients and, frankly, make them smarter? You can do that through stronger, better computing power. And so our first step was really making sure that the look and feel and the user experience is right based on good human-centered design principles with dynamic dashboarding and reporting. And so that's our blueprint is our portal. But now the next step is, okay, how do we increase the value of our own clients' data for them? And so to me, it's not just about the look and feel of the user experience. Now it's really about, okay, how effectively are we doing analytics with insights? Meaning how effectively can we leverage our clients' data and other data sets to provide analytics that make them smarter either on the stock picking side or if they're a wealth client or a retail client, things like pattern analysis to look at buying behavior on the investment manager side things like behavioral analytics, where you can look at the decision-making historically of a portfolio manager, understand where they've created value or destroyed value, and provide coaching and an understanding of those scenarios so that when that type of decision point comes again, they make the right call. 
So a lot of focus for us right now in trying to put out the roadmap for how we better harness the data and leverage this heavier computing power, cognitive capabilities, AI, to optimize the value of the client's data. How do you think about what's possible from an outsourcing perspective? One of the ways that I sort of gauge the future and what's coming is what some of these high pedigree startups are doing and how they look at the business. And so in many cases, all they want to do is service clients and pick stocks or bonds or whatever the strategy might be. They want to outsource everything else. That's all that they really see as core competency, including trading. I look at that and say, that's a good model for the future, easy to do for a startup, not so easy to do if you're a firm with $300 billion and you've been around for 100 years. I'm very bullish that outsourcing will continue to be the way, but I don't think it's right for every firm at every single point in time, but I think there are triggers. In terms of what's possible, the cloud has been a huge enabler of being able to push out technology faster, cheaper deployment models, more analytic capability, heavier computing power. We get these serverless environments. So I think anything's possible. And a part of what we're trying to do now is to say, okay, how can we cobble together these capabilities in a web-based infrastructure that's a much cheaper, faster deployment model than the historical, and deciding in which cases we should build versus where we should buy. Our philosophy is we want to be a platform company, so our core proprietary tech is really just the data layer, and then our reporting, we call it Blueprint on top of it, which does a lot more than just straight reporting, does analytics, et cetera. But that's all we want to own. The rest will effectively rent. So we have fund accounting systems for striking navs. We have portfolio accounting systems for trade date accounting. We have underlying analytics systems. And so within our architecture over time, we'll be able to plug and play different systems. And it's a never-ending project. At any given time, the technology will always be amorphous. We'll be either upgrading systems or decommissioning systems, putting in new systems. But that look and feel on the front end, the key there is have it be consistent across all the user groups and personas and keep building the capability there, pumping out better analytics, better information for our clients to make better decisions. What point do you decide to migrate saying, okay, we're going to go to this new system because it's got more powerful capability and better integration with the vertical that you're trying to build? There's different triggers. Some of the systems that we're using are older. Technology hasn't necessarily kept up. So we're upgrading, if you will, just to newer technology stacks. In certain cases, systems just won't scale enough for the volume of client transactions that we're putting through them. In other cases, we just think there's a better mousetrap. The world has changed. The technology has changed. We're constantly evaluating those moves. And some of them are big. It's a, to rip your accounting engine out is akin to open heart surgery. You don't want to do that unless you really need to. So a big part of what we're doing is creating this data-centric architecture where these other systems really are hanging off. And we put ourselves in a position where we can make these systems interchangeable and seamless to the client. So that's the journey that we're on. But we're constantly evaluating who's out there. Should we have an acquisition strategy to acquire that technology? Should we license it? Everything's on the table. Everything's situational. What are the triggers that people hit to begin the outsourcing conversation if you're a potential client? One could be a market cycle and the fee pressure and the burden on margins. Another could be entering new asset classes. So if you've got a traditionally U.S. long-only equity manager who wants to get into multi-currency derivatives, the chances are their systems aren't tooled for it. Their human capital 
don't necessarily know how to support those different asset classes. So in that case, you're looking at an outlay of capital. It's probably a year to buy and plus implement, and you get to go hire new folks. In an outsource model, there's a rate card, and you just tell us, and you turn it on, and off you go. So your speed to market of getting into these new capabilities is much faster in an outsourced environment. And the same is true with jurisdictional expansion. If you're a U.S.-based firm and you want to start launching product or open an office in the U.K., all you really need to do is open a sales office. Your operating platform can go with you wherever you need to around the world. And I've seen different firms obviously have different strategies. I mean, I had one client in the past whose strategy was to launch more products faster. We helped them launch 25 products in a single year, which was the fastest launch rate they've ever had. That was the strategic intent. And by being on an outsourced platform, they were able to do that. That's generally the discussion that I have. Are you able to come in and do bespoke arrangements and customize that relationship? I would characterize that as component-based outsourcing. So instead of outsourcing everything in the continuum of the middle office, everything from trade confirmation and matching to client reporting and all that, some of our clients will just want to do the trade settlements piece. Or for some clients, they just want to outsource the reconciliation piece to us. Happy to provide a component type of service. I think the best and most strategic solution, if you're going to outsource the middle office, is to put it all with one provider. And I say that because if you outsource components to different firms and you're trying to play this best of breed model, one for performance, one for recs, one for this, one for that, I think what happens is the risk now is in the integration between the different firms. And so when a problem happens, you get into a circular reference. So if the performance is wrong, whose fault is it? And meanwhile, everybody's trying to figure that out. In the meantime, you've got a portfolio manager who's frustrated because their performance numbers aren't right. By being on a single provider, the systems are all integrated. There's no system-to-system -system reconciliation or geographic reconciliation. So theoretically, the data quality is as high as it can be. Ultimately, it's garbage in, garbage out. What are the biggest misconceptions with outsourcing? One of the big ones is that it's cheaper. <laughs> it may or may not be cheaper on a run rate basis, but you would expect it would certainly be cheaper on a total cost of ownership basis, say over a five-year period. We'll ultimately translate it to a, a measure of basis points of assets under management. If I see that given firms growth assumptions with regards to AUM and number of portfolios, we can pretty much identify exactly what the operating costs are likely to be for them and therefore the revenue for us. But the other thing is the partnership. And do you believe that you are partnering with a firm that is going to be there when something goes wrong? And I say this all the time, and if we're fortunate enough to win your business, I'll promise you there'll be days we're going to disappoint you because it is a very complex operating environment. Things are going to happen. But my commitment to you is that if something does happen, we're always going to do the right thing. If I've got to write a check, I'll write the check. If we break something, we'll go in and do the forensics and come back and give you a full report of the controls that we put in place to make sure that, that it isn't going to happen again. The other thing is, it's not so much a misconception, but it's a mismanagement that I see happen all the time, where firms will outsource, and rather than leverage us as a provider or any other provider and manage us, they start to see their headcount creep up again over time, because they start to create little cottage industries Rather than push it to us, they'll start doing it on their side. And I think we've gotten smarter about that over time, too, to help our clients better manage us through just better governance, better transparency into operating KPIs that really matter 
that's not a misconception as much as it is a potential for fixed cost creep over time if you don't effectively manage the provider. There's an argument that says you lose control. And to some extent, that's true. You definitely lose the institutional knowledge over time about how your operations work. If those people get displaced or moved to higher value functions, whatever the approach might be, over time, the institutional knowledge of how operations work is on my side and not the client's side. And the more time that goes on, the further that gets diluted. But good governance makes up for that. And there's a big focus on lack of control of data. Our view is that, yes, we process data for a living, but it's your data. So we're going to serve it up to you however you want it, whether it's through APIs or direct access to our data warehouse reports, file transfers, whatever it is, we'll have complete flexibility and give you whatever access to that data that it is that you want. So we're not trying to create that control problem. In fact, we're trying to enhance what can be done with that data. But I think that's a misconception that you do lose control of your own data. I would argue it's a better setup. With regard to the engagement model, so if I'm a manager and I hire you to outsource, what's that successful connection point? As a manager, you still own it. You may not be doing the work, but you're accountable to what's going upstream. That's a good question. Every client engages with us slightly differently. We have a consistent engagement model. The way that we set it up is every client has a relationship manager and they're responsible for being the overall client advocate, new projects that are upcoming. It's more managing the overall relationship and the commercial aspects of it. And then we have what we call account managers, which are effectively the heads of operations for that particular client within STP. And we have lots of operating groups behind that that do the work corporate actions, income, et cetera. But some clients want a single point of contact. Other clients want to go straight to the experts, right? Whether it's a derivatives person or a performance person. We're not particularly dogmatic about that. We'll set it up however the client wants it. But then there's broader governance. So the way that I would look at a relationship is we have a very simple client maturity model where we rate clients from one to five. One being the least robust relationship, five being a very strategic relationship. And the way we make that assessment is the level of contact and connectivity across both organizations. So if it's just our relationship manager talking with his counterpart twice a month, that would be a client level one maturity, which is a lot of times where they start. And the RM's job is to know where that client is on that continuum and to keep moving them up the chain. And so I would say like a level five client, I would have a relationship with their CEO our CTO would have a relationship with their CTO, same thing with our COO. And so we're connected up and down the organization. We're a part of their annual strategic planning. To me, that's a much more robust relationship and it will ensure much better strategic alignment. How do you think about the different customer segments that consider outsourcing? In my mind, there's three different client shapes, if you will. There's emerging managers that are just you know spinning out or starting up that don't really have many preconceived notions about how operations should work. They have the benefits and their challenges. And then you've got existing clients that have always been insourced, so they're outsourcing for the first time. And then you've got second generation clients who are outsourced to another provider, but want to switch. And each of those three scenarios are very, very different. When you're implementing a second generation client, the implementation process is different because that client doesn't have any institutional knowledge of how operations work. That's all at their provider. And 
the provider is not going to let STP under the covers to see how everything works. So we really, in that case, have to focus on the integration point. So look at the interface files, look at all the reporting, and our job there is to replicate the same outcomes or improve them. In some ways, that's easier, because if you think about a firm that's been insourced for the last 100 years, let's say, now you're trying to change the hearts and minds of people who have been doing it the same way for their entire career, and now here comes Houlihan and says you should do it this way. Well, that often has its own challenges as well. So these implementations, these are transformations. These are not conversions or implementations. It's not like switching fund accounting providers. It is a transformation of your operating model, impacting lots of different constituents, but obviously the ops and tech side. The kinds of folks that we hire, and as we think about these implementations, change management is a huge aspect of it because it's human nature to avoid change. And so as soon as the change happens, the antibodies come out, and that's just the way it works. And you've got to be aware of that and manage that risk as part of the implementation. And how important is it, if I'm a client of yours, to know what your process is? Because the client's always setting their own expectations. My senses and experiences, understanding basically how you guys operate at scale, because you can't customize for every single client. Exactly. So, And we have a process for that. A request comes in and we, we have committees who will look at it and say, okay, is this a one-off or is this a product thing that we could then further commercialize and that will impact how we think about pricing it or doing it for free, depending on the situation. So I, when I say they should be very familiar with our process, I don't mean necessarily that they should understand every aspect of our global operating model. I mean more in general, how controlled and how industrial strength is our process. The redundancy backup, both systems-wise as well as people-wise, where do certain things happen? And a big focus that we have, which we like to turn on our clients as well, is this notion of service with context, which means that we not only have client intimacy, but we have portfolio level intimacy, knowing that, okay, this particular portfolio manager is very demanding, very little tolerance for error, so know that, and use that to temper how fast you respond, whereas others, their expectations aren't as high. And so we ask our clients to work with us to do presentations, for example, to our teams in the U.S. and India on their business, and in particular, the value that we provide to them, which is very useful for me because it helps, in particular, our India teams be more client close and feel part of the process as opposed to feeling like a processing engine halfway around the world. And so we try to have as much balance as we can about, certainly it's on us to understand our clients' requirements and needs, but we try to do it both ways. We are very client-led, so a lot of our development and product work is based on immediate client feedback. We try to balance that. Some of it has to be vision, competitive analysis, strategy, but we are hyper-responsive to our clients. And so for us, a lot of what we're doing product-wise, we've run by our clients and tested. And in fact, we've got a new version of our blueprint coming out uh, towards the end of this year. And we've already got, I think, two or three beta clients that are signed up to kick the tires, if you will, and then we'll roll it out to the mainstream next year. Tell me more about the India office and the function that they play. India is a big part of our operation. We do a lot of our day-to-day -day operational responsibilities there, so reconciliations. They're actually in the U.S. and India, so we've got teams in both so that we can pass the book, if you will, and leverage the clock. But we've got an income processing group, reconciliations. We've got folks striking NAVs in India. We've got a big HR team in India. We've got managed services team. And we've got a tech team in India as well. So we do some of our development 
out of India. Some of it's done out of Uruguay, and some of it's done out of our headquarters in Westchester. It's both a tech center as well as an ops center and gives us great leverage. What's the size of the asset servicing that you're providing? Right now we have just over $400 billion on the platform. So we've got about 110 fund clients, which are largely hedge funds and private equity. We've got 50 or so wealth clients. And then we've got just over 35 institutional clients, most of which are full outsourcing, a couple of which are components. And the, the institutional side of our business is the largest by far in terms of revenue. Is there any area that you're seeing growth right now? I see continued growth in all three of our verticals, and that's both organic as well as our acquisition strategy. And I do think trend-wise, certainly outsourced trading, I believe that's going to continue to be a trend. So we do offer that through a partner and have the right to distribute an OMS license for those who are startups that want to leverage what we have and be able to trade with us as well as, not with us, but with a partner as well as get the middle office platform. So, yeah, so I'm pretty bullish, but we are effectively a recession business, so we tend to see a spike in demand when we see market cycles. I'd love to hear a specific use case on a typical client that you're working with today. Yeah, so one of the clients that we work with today is a startup ESG manager who was very focused on not having their own infrastructure, wanted to outsource everything, technology, operations, trading, even compliance. We provided them with an order management system and we provide full middle and back office outsourcing. And that's been a great relationship. But then we have other clients that have been around for much longer. We've got a $60 billion client that we service in all three of our verticals. So we, we support their wealth business, we support their institutional business, and when I say wealth, it's both family office as well as their private client, which is different. And with that ESG manager, what was the mindset of saying, okay, I just want to outsource everything? Simplicity, the ability to focus on what's core. In their case, the most important thing is building their brand and doing fundraising, making good investment decisions, working with clients and selling. It's not dealing with things in the back office that would distract the principals from doing what they need to do to build a business. And that's a common theme that I see with startups. They've been there, seen it, and just don't want to deal with those things that they know are just not core. I want to make sure that whoever's starting this fund or whatever the strategy is, whatever the wrapper is, that there is pedigree there and they have a proven history of success. Again, because we're going to make an investment to get them set up. So I want to make sure they thrive. You scale your own business. At the end of the day, this is people, process, technology, but the people part is mission critical. How do you find good people to do this kind of work? That's a good question. Finding talent's not the challenge. And the question about how you scale it, we're getting big on efficiency in the context of service excellence. So we make a clear distinction between what is service and what is operational excellence? Because they're different. You could have a really good relationship manager who's very empathetic and play back the problems and client feels good that they've got a good advocate. But if the operational quality isn't there, you're not going to get away with it for very long. I put operational excellence and efficiency in the same bucket. And so we've got an operational excellence initiative. We use the OKR framework, objectives and key results is how we sort of track initiatives. We're in the process of setting a five-year goal for efficiency, which is fairly audacious only because AI is still so new, 
that four or five years from now, I know we're going to be able to do pretty incredible things in a much more automated fashion. What we're doing is we're saying, all right, let's embed operational excellence and efficiency all the way down to the functional managers, whoever's running corporate actions, whoever's running income, performance, et cetera. It's not just about being the smartest corporate actions person or managing the team anymore. It's also about efficiency. So if you've got a baseline of efficiency, whatever that widget model is, part of that person's job and part of their compensation should be how effectively they are driving towards continuous improvement of that efficiency. And that's a combination of a lot of different things. Do you have the right people? Do you have the right process? Do you have the right controls? Do you have the right technology? To me, that's their job is to be looking at that continuum of things, building cases to get more efficient. If we're doing this particular task the same way two years from now, we're doing it wrong. If we're doing it today the way we were doing it two years ago, we're probably doing it wrong. The big question is, how do you embed that in the culture? That's not a project. And the best way to do that is through compensation and providing a good tool set for people to understand what's possible. The last couple of years, there's been some big, well-known organizations moving to outsource. So the groups like Bridgewater, I think you did something with Allianz. I mean, does that help the conversation in the industry? The bigger firms were trailblazers. The first big deal was PIMCO and State Street back in the day. And they've all looked at it. T. Rowe has done a big deal with Bank of New York. There's a lot of big deals that have been done. I don't think it's a new concept in the asset manager space. I think it's pretty well accepted that it's a tool and it's a mechanism, but it's a religious debate internally as to whether or not you want to have your own infrastructure and you think there's value add there, or you, you don't think it's a core competency and it's something that you should outsource. I don't tend to get into that religious debate because that's really the firm's personality and their own philosophy and strategy. All I can do is educate you on what I think the benefits are. So I think it's already a tool in the arsenal. And I think every year, most firms that are thinking about their architecture are, are thinking about it. They're kicking tires, talking to providers, talking to others who have done it. So I don't think there's any new news there. I think it just goes back to the trigger. When is it appropriate for a firm to think about going down that path? The, the area, though, that I think is interesting is the asset owner space. And I would characterize that as lots of different asset owner types, if you will, but there's big sovereign funds, obviously. There's foundations, endowments, universities, other philanthropic organizations. And then there's big corporates, institutions that run their own money, insurance companies, etc. Some of them are more sophisticated than others. I don't say this to be critical, but I would argue that the asset owner segment is probably, in some cases, a decade behind the asset manager segment with respect to understanding what's possible. Many of them, for example, public funds, et cetera, are still operating off the custody book of record. I spent 16 years at a bank and tried like every other bank to turn the custody model into an investment book of record model and it's never worked and it ends up being a spaceship. And at some point you finally get to say, look, you want middle office, you gotta buy a middle office. I can't, I've tweaked the custody model every which way I can. Tell me more about this, because a lot of people blow right by it, I think. I see them you know, over the last decade or so get wiser to the continuum of systems, if you will, or types of data that you can get access to. Their constituents want better data. They want better real-time, better reporting, better analytics. A lot of cases, they don't have an investment book of record. This is if they manage money themselves. Sometimes they'll manage half of it, and they'll sub the other half out. And so in that case, you got to figure out, all right, if you're going to have a true investment book of record, you got to have 
the trades in your OMS for your own trading, but then you're going to be taking in data feeds from your sub-advisors every day to give you a complete picture and be able to run a performance. So it gets complex, but it's coming. Their constituents are going to require them to have the level of basically an investment book of record to get trade data performance. They also have situations where custodial bank, they'll book a market value and a return, but then they have a period of closing and then it gets pushed to the next period. I mean, it just gets very messy from a custodial record perspective. Yeah. And to be fair to the asset owners, I'm generalizing, but their investment strategies tend to be more complex. They're going to be heavier into alts and as a result are going to be more complicated than a traditional manager. But we like the complexity. I mean, that's anybody can process an equity or a bond. That's the future of our business is being able to support never-ending change with regards to either end client requirements or client requirements across our franchise, in particular, the client experience. But a few closing questions at the end here. What is the one industry book or other resource you most oftenly recommend to people? <laughs> Radical Candor. It's a leadership book written by the name of Kim Scott. It's a great leadership book. The title is Radical Candor, but there's frankly nothing radical about it. It's just about being a good person and caring personally, but challenging directly and being able to have more frank, authentic conversations as a leader. So I'm constantly referring that book to folks, and I've read it about four or five times now. It sits on my desk at work. And then the other question I have is, what advice would you give to someone exploring outsourcing? I would say really do your due diligence and make sure you really understand your internal requirements and be aware of who the clients are. And I have to remind my folks this all the time. The clients, when you outsource middle office, yeah, there's going to be some operational folks left behind who are responsible for governance and managing us. But the clients are, depending on the services, the traders, the portfolio managers, the distribution folks, and ultimately our clients and clients. And so make sure your provider gets that. We have one client right now who's launching a couple of new swaps portfolios. We're dealing with their project team. And everybody's like, that's the client. And I'm like, actually, the client are the distribution people and the portfolio managers who are trying to launch this strategy as a business proposition to make more money for the firm. Yes, they're all our client, but who's the real benefactor of this? It's going to be the PMs and the distribution folks who are trying to sell it. So, you know, and making sure that as you evaluate providers, I do recommend working with a consultant because they'll help do some both subjective and objective measurement of different provider capabilities and be eyes wide open and be buyer beware about what people say they can and can't do. It's trust but verify. And what type of consultants are these? Advisory firms that are out there that provide advisory services around either buying new systems or outsourcing. And they specialize in this space. My prior firm that was one of the things we did. That's how I got into outsourcing. I was helping firms evaluate whether it made sense by looking at financial and non-financial implications. So there are consultants out there that specialize in this and know the providers quite well. Help you assess your needs and help you match those needs to different providers. And they'll know what's real and what's a sales pitch. Dan, thanks for the time today. This is really insightful and appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. I enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.